We have people listening to these uh, sermons um, in many, many different places, and, and I'm not sure that it's because I'm preaching them, although many of them know me. But I think we've struck a chord with this theme of going deeper. And so to all of you in Charlotte who are listening to these sermons, I would say good morning, but also, if you know, send your money to First Presbyterian Church. <laughs> And they know me well enough to know I'm not kidding. (laughs) I am glad that people listen to the word and uh, find pleasure in it. And uh, so we welcome everyone who listens to these uh, sermons, both here in Richmond. We have many of our folks who can't get to church that tell me they uh, sign up and listen online. And so good morning to all of you. And people um, all over the place. And you have done well to say to your friends who live in Texas and other places, uh, go online and listen to, um, to these sermons on going deeper. So um, it's a good thing. And uh, we take pleasure in it. Today's sermon is the fifth sermon in this six-part series, On Going Deeper, A Call to Follow Christ. And I'm basing these six stories on one story where the disciples fish all night, catch nothing, get out of their boats, wash their nets, going home, I'm done. And Jesus steps into the boat and says, go deeper. And they fish deeper and they catch, of course, uh, a lot of fish. And at the end of the story, they leave the fish And they follow him. And so who was caught in the story? Not the fish, but the people. And how is Christ catching the church today? How is God catching this world we live in, the news we watch every day? How are we being caught for a higher calling? Caught for the kingdom of God and not just the kingdom of this earth. And is that work going on among us? Today's sermon is about going deeper in the act of forgiveness. From John's Gospel, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before them. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses, we commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now they said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away. 
one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. The word of the Lord. You know, this story almost didn't make it into the Bible. It's only found in John's gospel. It's not found in the other three. And if you go back to look at the earliest manuscripts that we have of John's gospel, it's not in there. It's not in the early manuscripts of John. And so somewhere along the way, the church said, wait, 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 wait a minute. We left out the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. That's got to be in there. And they came back and inserted it here at the end of the 7th chapter, the beginning of the 8th chapter of John's gospel in later translations. What a powerful story. It would have been a sin to leave it out. A nameless woman. I find that fascinating. She's caught in the very act of committing adultery. So there it is. And with all that detail, they don't give you her name. I mean, it wouldn't have taken much to say, uh, you know, and they call Margaret, you know. But they intentionally leave her name off of the slate. Why? I think part of it is because it really didn't matter who she was. They weren't interested in her. They weren't interested in the adultery. They were interested in trapping Jesus, not her, Jesus. So her name could be any name. It could be every name. It could be our name. She becomes a symbol for everybody who's ever done anything wrong, who's ever broken the law of Moses. She becomes a symbol for everybody who has lost it in their life, who's gotten caught in the very act of something that's humiliated that I got caught and I can't lie my way out of this. She's that person. It was a powerful moment for me when I was in the Holy Land several years ago and uh, we were on the teaching steps of the temple. Many of you maybe have been there. And the guide said to us, these are the steps that were here when Jesus was here and this is where rabbis would come to teach and it dawned on me, oh my gosh. John 7 and 8 happened right here. She, she was here. He was here. The scribes and the Pharisees were on these steps. I, I just sat down in, in, in some silence and thought about the power of this story happening on those steps outside the temple there in Jerusalem with this nameless woman. 
The Pharisees, an interesting group, uh, their lawyers are experts on the law of Moses for Israel. Now, if you're a younger person, I'll I'll do the dots for you because I know all you older people know this. But Pharisees go way back to where at one point in Israel's history, Israel being God's chosen people and through the covenant of Abraham, and they've come through this long history, they finally get to the promised land. And then over uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, they blow it. They become unfaithful. They forget the law. They start worshiping other gods and God allows them to be taken over by other nations and they go into exile. When they go into exile, they live under a king, Nebuchadnezzar, in Babylon. And they have lost all this promise that their great, 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 great grandparents had worked and suffered for for so long. And this generation blew it. And so when they were allowed to come back into Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and to be reestablished under the covenant of Abraham... One thing they wanted to make sure never happened, again, they never ever wanted to forget the law of God. It's a good thing. Nehemiah stood and read the law, Ezra uh, stood and read the law out loud as Nehemiah, governor, was rebuilding the temple. This was that period of time. The Pharisees were birthed in that period of the of Israel wanting to make sure they never ever did that again they got caught Israel got caught in the very act of being unfaithful to God and they suffered the consequences and so when they were allowed to come back when the grace of God allowed them to come back and reestablish themselves they renewed their vows to the law and the Pharisees were charged as the lawyers to make sure we never ever forget it again. Now that was a good thing. But as years went on, sometimes good things turn into bad things. And Pharisees became self-righteous, indignant, controlling, pious, religious people who began to not care for humanity, but cared only for themselves And for the letter of the law, not the spirit, the letter. Of all the people who irritated Jesus, Pharisees irritated him the most. He didn't have a hard time talking to a prostitute. That was easy. He had a difficult time talking to church folks. That's a nervous laugh I heard. Their job is to discredit him because there's no way that a stonemason from Nazareth, born of commoners who weren't even married at the time, this, this whole story is a joke, and that there's no way that that person is going to be the Messiah, the soldier of God, who's going to come back into the world and bring Israel back up to being the top nation among all nations, just like our ancestor David. At Christmas Eve, on Christmas Eve, you'll hear these words, you know, Christ, son of David, son of the greatest king we ever knew. And the expectation of the Messiah was that he would come back and reestablish Israel 
on that high pinnacle throne. And here's this carpenter with a bunch of fishermen from Galilee who aren't even educated, who aren't in the Sanhedrin, who aren't wearing the fancy robes, who are just podunk country boys, who were coming into town with a parade of folks saying, he's the Messiah. Look, I would have made a great Pharisee. No, I would have. And, you know, I find Presbyterians do a good job of it. There's another nervous laugh. Why? Because we guard our tradition. We hang on to what's important, the essentials of the Reformed faith. We hang on to what's right, and we oppose all who oppose what's right. And we know what the Book of Order says. And maybe the Bible. (laughs) I would have made a great Pharisee because I would have argued that this Jesus needed to be put down. I'm telling you, I would have. Because I would have been a part of the establishment. And I would have guarded the temple at all costs. He's a threat to Jewish authority. He's creating turmoil in the system, which, by the way, will bring down the Roman Empire on our necks. Israel was one little country in the whole big Roman Empire. And if any country started to wobble, guess who came for dinner? Rome. And they came with all the garrisons and all the power and all the steel and all the horses and all the metal. And they showed up and squelched whatever political uprising there was. So, Jesus has to go so Rome won't come. Do you understand this? It's politics. At its worst, it's politics. And it's bad religion. So they don't care about this woman. They don't even tell you what her name is. And they happen to miss... And a glaring flaw in their argument. Here's the law verbatim that they are protecting that's in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. This is the law the Pharisees would want to quote to you if they were here today. And here's how it reads. No tricks. This is the real law. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor... Both, very important word, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Where is the man? If they caught her in the very act of adultery, he was there. So they had to say, Henry, get on out of here. Go on, get back to your wife. Don't ever do this again. Get out of here. We're going to turn around. It's a good old boy system. Henry, get out of here. We're taking what's her name to Jesus because we really don't care about the law, which is right here. If a man commits adultery, both the adulterer and adulteress shall be put to death. We don't care about this. Not really. We don't care about her. We don't even know what her name is. Go home, Henry. Get out of here. We're taking her to Jesus because 
Jesus is who we want to trap. Because if we can trap him, if we can prove that he's a fraud, then his crowds will disappear. Rome will go away. We'll get back to business as usual. We've been here before. We know how to handle this. Theologian William Barclay paints a clear interpretation of the dilemma we're in. He says this, if Jesus said that the woman ought to be stoned to death, two things would follow. One is he would lose the name he had gained for love and mercy and never again would be called the friend of sinners. Two, he would come into collision with the Roman law for the Jews had no power to carry out the death sentence. To anyone. That's why the Jews took Jesus to Rome so they would crucify him. And if he said that the woman should be pardoned, it could be said that he was teaching the others to break the law of Moses. You see the trap. Well, Jesus does this strange thing. He bends down and starts writing in the dirt. This is very odd. And many people have speculated as to what he was doing. Some people say he was writing all the sins of the Pharisees on the ground. There's Bob. All right, Bob. Let's see. 1954, you went to Vegas. You know, it's all there. Others say he was stalling. He was doing something to disconnect himself to try to figure out how to get himself out of the trap. Others say this is a customary thing to do for the Jewish people when they want to ignore someone. They just start writing in the dirt as if to say, I'm not paying attention. We, we don't know, but it's, it's a strange thing. And then when he stands up, he says this line that people, you could go to Starbucks down here in Carytown today and ask people who don't go to church, have you ever heard a line that starts out, let he who is without sin, and I'll guarantee you half of Starbucks would be able to say, oh yeah, that's that thing, uh... Let he who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. Yeah, I've heard that. Who said that? I don't know, Bill Clinton. (laughs) Yet another nervous laugh. They wouldn't know who said it necessarily, but they know the line. Let he who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. And look what he's done. He's turned the trap yet again around. She's not the one and Henry's not the one being trapped. Margaret and Henry, it's not about them. And now it's not about Jesus. And now it's spun back onto the Pharisees. But I got a problem with this and you should have one. Is Jesus saying that adultery is okay? It's one of the Ten Commandments. It made the top ten. I mean, he can't be saying adultery is a good thing. Adultery tears families up. Is he condoning adultery? Is he saying that there's no place for justice or judgment in the world? Surely not. Are we supposed to live with this principle? I'm okay, you're okay, you know, whatever. Whatever. Don't you hate that word? Whatever. And if he's saying this, then we ought not to follow him. Because this is crazy. 
This will create pandemonium, chaos, lawlessness, a permissive society. I'm surprised they didn't argue with him more. You know, as if to say, look, Jesus, you can't be condoning her actions. There's no question to her guilt. I mean, if that's what you're playing off of, they caught her in the, quote, very act. Adultery is destructive to families. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You can't just let this woman go. This is a sin, and it's punishable by death. This woman's facing the death penalty today. And you're just going to give her her life back like this doesn't matter. Is that what Christianity is? Indulgence and permissiveness and just cheap grace, just whatever. They didn't argue with him. And he bends down and starts to write in the sand again, and they have to face this question, could I throw the first stone? Well, I can see the Pharisees. I'm I'm there on those steps right now, and I can feel those Pharisees standing around, and, and they're all men. And one of them looking at the other one going, Bob, you... Bob goes, no, I, uh, I got some issues. Tom, Tom, you're a good man. Be the first to cast a stone at her. It's a law. It's in Leviticus. No, I can't do that. I mean, I've had an indiscretion in my own life. Cheated on my wife and she... Let me come home. Well, well, I know, Henry, you can do it. No, I can't do it either. I can't even tell you what I've done. So the oldest of the group came and placed his stone there at the base of the step. And then the next, and then the next, the old guys went first. So if I'm a younger elder, I'm not going to stand there and say, oh, I want to throw a stone. I mean, there's my mentors who are dropping their stones. I'm going to follow. And this woman and Jesus, all they hear is the dropping of rocks. You ever heard that at your house? You ever heard the dropping of stones in your marriage? I don't know. Maybe with one of your children, brother, sister. How would you drop stones? Oh, this just gets really hard. How would you drop stones for ISIS? Or for the people who did 9-11? Or to the people in Korea, or the people in Syria, or in Congo, where their own people are starving their people to death. How do you drop a rock for that? I don't know. They did it. 
And when it's all over, Jesus stands up and says to the woman, where did everybody go? Nobody's going to condemn you. She said, no, sir. And Jesus said, well, I'm not. But then he said something you can't forget. He said, go your way and do not sin again. Margaret, go be somebody else. Margaret, you cannot possibly be forgiven like this and then go back and live the life you were living. Margaret, you've been given your life back today. This has to change you, Margaret. From now on, go live in gratitude. Go live in praise. Get away from all the demons that were in your life. Look, Margaret, from now on, live to, to please God who has given you a tremendous gift. Go be somebody else. This isn't lawlessness. This isn't indulgence. This isn't denying justice. This is reconciliation of humanity to God. This is about divine sovereignty trumping our human depravity. This is about being a new creature in Christ. Go be somebody else. I dream for the day when the churches get rid of stewardship campaigns. Because it's never made sense to me why I need to beg people for money to support the ministry of a church when our sins have all been forgiven by this gracious God. Why would I ever have to manipulate somebody to be thankful or grateful or gracious or generous? I think it's a sin. Oh, we're going to do it this fall. Don't worry. But, (laughs) But I won't like it. When your life has been given back to you, you can't give it away fast enough. I don't mean your money. I mean all of it. Margaret, go be somebody else. Today we celebrate Pentecost in the church. We're not good at it. We know how to do Christmas. we're, We're good at Easter. I don't know why we fumble so much. At Pentecost, did any of you get a Pentecost card in the mail? No. Anybody get a Pentecost present today? No. Having Pentecost lunch, are you? Yeah. No. We don't know what to do with the Spirit of God who blows in upon our lives. We know how to handle a baby born in, in a feed box. I mean, we kind of even know what to do with an empty tomb But man, don't make me deal with the spirit of God that might come into my life. Make me drop all my rocks and forgive somebody. I want to skip that holiday unless I'm her.